Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. In today's episode, we're going to delve into the world of digital rights. My guest is Brett Solomon, the co-founder and executive director of Access Now. Brett, welcome to Tech Mirror. Thanks so much for having me. We are absolutely delighted to have you. Now, Brett, you have had a very impressive career in advocacy. Can I ask where your interest in advocacy or protest first came from? <laughs> um, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I mean, my thinking has always been around, you know, social justice and human rights and, like, how do we use um, the skills, the tools that we have available to create change and to ensure the enjoyment for rights across the board. After working as the event coordinator um, at Oxfam, um, I, I moved into kind of policy advocacy work on International Youth Parliament and then to Amnesty and meanwhile, I got a, a master's in international human rights law after doing a law degree. And I think the whole, the things just started to converge, um, particularly when technology came into the equation. Mm, mm. And so the organisation that you're now the executive director of, Access Now, is one of the largest digital rights groups in the world. And, and you know, you have a very large staff. You run the world's largest human rights online conference, RightsCon, which I'm sure we'll get to. You founded mm. Access Now back in 2009. And if I understand correctly, it was around the context of uh, what was happening in Iran and the Iranian election. Can you just maybe talk mm. us through, before we dive into what it was that you did, what was happening mm. in Iran back in 2009, just to refresh our memory? So it was, um, Ahmadinejad was the, was the president uh, of Iran and there was elections happening and these kind of results started to emerge that were like, you know, outrageously inflated um, in his favour. People might remember the, the kind of, I think, the enduring images of um, of people with a green um, thumb, you know, who people who had voted. It was it was basically the tagline, or the hashtag actually, even at that point was um, um, "Where is my vote?" And so, you know, we've seen again in the last couple of years, or in this last year, the way in which the the kind of the street can erupt, and also the mm -hmm. online environment can erupt in response to injustice. Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen the consequences um, of a nervous and exposed authoritarian state and how it uses technology to try and silence a population and also to try and cut it off from the rest of the world. And that was the entry point for, for Access Now. So you founded Access Now in that context. And what was it that you set Access Now up to do? So the original mission was to defend and extend the digital rights of users at risk. In fact, there was an original mission, if we go right back, which was more about um, mobilizing for global digital freedom. That was the, the yeah. tagline. And so, you know, we've been through lots of iterations, but the, the mission today and the mission that's been in place for a long time is about defending and extending the digital rights of people and communities at risk. And that's what drives the organization and also RightsCon, mm -hmm. uh, which is the annual event that we run. 
When I think of that period of time, um, 2009 in Iran, but then also the Arab Spring, which sort of sort of happens right. in 2011. So you have Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria. And I understand you were on the ground at Tahrir Square in 2011. And there was such a sense of optimism at that time that the internet was going to democratize and not just bring democracy, but almost bring liberal democracy to the world. And we look back on that now, and perhaps with a sense that there was an element of arrogance that we thought that that was going to happen. When you were on the ground, did you have that sense of optimism? I don't know how much we were sort of back then thinking about it in terms of like the positive and the negative, all the kind of enabling or the disenabling it was more just like a job needs to be done mm. right like it was it was like the internet's been cut off um in in egypt because mubarak is concerned that the online sphere is going to topple him um how the hell do we get it back on mm. right like how do we respond to you know the possibilities of citizen media i mean you know when when 2009 um, was happening in Iran, like we were receiving all of this content from colleagues um, in Tehran saying, you know, there's 250,000 people in the main square and Fars News Agency, which is the news agency that of the Iranian government, was issuing a statement saying there's 150 people in the, mm. in the main square protesting. And before citizen media, we were reliant either upon the official news agency or a foreign correspondent. So we would go to CNN and BBC, et cetera, and say, hey, look at this video. Like, look what's happening. And, and, and the editors were like, well, how do you substantiate that? And how do you, mm-hmm. how, what's your accreditation to be able to ensure authenticity, et cetera? I think we need to go back to that point when citizen media was not actually a thing in the sense that you know, news would come through that was, they say, through official channels. But now every bit of news has somebody with a mobile phone, mm, obviously. Yeah. And, and so, so it was like, well, we need to, we need to be part of the, the, the communication channel to get this content to the world. And so, you know, over time, obviously, it's become much clearer and I spoke at an event you know, with the lead agency on internet shutdowns. We track internet shutdowns around the world and, you know, I, I, I do fear maybe the internet has actually become the enemy um, of the population and maybe the internet has become the friend of the dictator. And so that shift has been obviously happening um, you know, that, that, that recognition has been happening for some time. Um, and so, so the question then becomes how do you limit the negative effects of technology and how do you maximise the positive effects? Um, as a civil society organisation, you know, we need to pick our battles and understand, like, where the most egregious breaches are and, like, how do we, where do we think we can have a role in responding to them? Mm. And I think that's a good segue into the concept of digital rights. So when you talk about digital rights, how should our listeners be conceiving of what digital rights are? And and this tension between digital rights and human rights, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. 
I think traditionally it's sat within the civil and political rights framework of the broader spectrum of human rights. So freedom of expression, opinion, association, privacy, and access to information. Like those are the five key rights that we traditionally fit under um, under the concept of digital rights. And all of those rights are radically deeply affected um, by technology when you think about, you know, um, freedom of speech, um, freedom of expression, mm. the right to privacy, the right to join with others in protest, like all of these things are now fundamentally and existentially impacted by technology. But the, the, the pandemic, I think, also woke the world up to the fact that it's not just about your civil and political rights, it's actually about your economic, social and cultural rights as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, my right to an education, um, you know, is, 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 is directly impacted by, by my ability to be able to access the internet. Um, my, you know, your livelihood, your right to a sustainable livelihood, your right to healthcare, all of those rights um, are, are intermediated by, uh, by, by technology. And so, so when we think about human rights in the digital age, I think which is a useful framing, mm-hmm. um, how, what does human rights mean in the digital age, which is currently where we're at? Um, you know, how does, how does the whole spectrum of rights, and from our perspective, those whose rights are most at risk, because that's within our mission, so people whose right to freedom of expression is like radically impacted negatively and positively by um, by technology. So, for example, when somebody government decides to intentionally turn off the network, mm. and a direct impact upon that right um, in the digital environment. But it obviously doesn't just play out in the digital environment; it plays out in the in the offline world as well. And so, that sort of merging of offline rights and online rights, I think it's impossible now to think about human rights in the absence of technology, and I think digital rights and human rights in a way have become one. You know, um, uh, human rights scholars <laughs> might question that. Um, I think that traditional human rights organisations also struggle with uh, the idea about how to, you know, to understand the right to um, privacy in a physical space but don't necessarily know how to protect it in a digital space. And so for the human rights community, there's a real challenge in trying to um, update our understanding, update our advocacy, update our solidarity. Mm, Yeah, and I mean, I'm certainly one of the people who sits firmly in the camp of that uh, human rights are now inseparable from technology. And, And I think it's often easy to be overwhelmed by the enormity of the task and the gravity of what is at stake in this field. So perhaps can we start the next set of questions around what do you think one of the wins has been uh, recently in this space, perhaps domestically or internationally, that you think is something we should be celebrating? Mm. Uh, <laughs> because I, insert I laugh. awkward pause. <laughs> yeah, insert, insert awkward pause. Because you know, when you said celebrating, I was like slash commiserating. You know, it's not that there haven't been wins, mm. and I I don't want to give the wrong impression, but I, I can give you two examples of I think where there's been maybe a slowing down of losses, <laughs> which okay. is a win. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I mentioned the idea of. of 
uh, internet shutdowns, and we've seen 185 internet shutdowns um, in 2022. So last year we just we just released our report now on looking back and uh, annually in 35 countries. And so the, the the thing about the internet shutdown is that you know this intentional disruption of the network, specifically you know by government, largely to stop the free flow of information. Um, to a particular population or in a particular region. Um, and we have managed as a civil society, we, we have managed now to do a range of different things, which I think are really important. One is we've actually named the internet shutdown mm-hmm. as a thing, and we have a agreed upon definition of it. We also now have many, many places of recognition that an internet shutdown is a violation of international law. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been agreed upon in, from you know within the UN Human Rights Council, um, all the way through to statements from G7 ministers um, who call for cease and desist on these on shutdowns. I mean, we've really managed to to, to, to name it, um, to um, to create norms around it, mm. and also to create a coalition around it, to um, like a public coalition around it, which means that. The governments um, are understanding the consequences of this matter. They know that if they shut down the internet, that there will be real-world consequences, both in terms of political consequences, economic ones, social ones, and also questioning their ability, you know, and legitimacy to, to govern. And so it's really like that. And I think as a result of that, um, we've seen less. Shutdowns happen than we might up than we would otherwise have seen. We've also, as a coalition, managed to stop internet shutdowns from occurring, and that's probably the least exciting thing that I've ever said. But you know, we know <laughs> because you know, look, nothing happened. Like it doesn't actually. You can't really put out a press release on that. But 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 we have seen. We know in three or four cases, including uh, in Kenya, that that the shutdown did not happen probably as a result of um, the work that was done preemptively. I think the other thing, um, so, you know, maybe we would have seen 250 internet shutdowns. We only had two new countries uh, enter the shutdown um, bad bad boy in inverted commas list, um, which was Tunisia um, and Armenia. So that's good. So we've seen a, a slowing of the growth of the number of countries. We also know that once the government shuts down the internet once, is very likely to do it again. So if we can keep that number of countries down, mm. that means that um, you know we we're, un- we're oh, hopefully we're unlikely to see a growth in the number of shutdowns. The second one, which I've just mentioned, which is extremely important in terms of human rights in the digital age or digital rights, which is the issue of spyware. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen this like outrageous, just uh, almost unspeakable growth of the surveillance industry. Um, you know, targeted spyware that's focused particularly on journalists and bloggers and human rights defenders and opposition parties and you name it, um, uh, you know, defenseless folks um, who are subject to an acute invasion of their privacy, you know, access to cameras, microphones, data, address books, et cetera. And this has happened with impunity for so many years now. Mm. Um, And I think we have really managed to both name it. Uh, again, I think we've managed to show how, it, it demonstrate how it's a breach of international human rights law. But more importantly, 
the political winds have shifted on this one. The U.S. government, as a result of advocacy and the work that's been done by Citizen Lab and Amnesty Tech and Access Now, we and others, we have managed to encourage and now see the U.S. government um, put certain companies, including um, NSO Group, on the entity list, the uh, Department of Commerce and Treasury entity list, and now also a ban on U.S. government um, agencies from purchasing and using um, spyware. And this is a massive deal, yeah. Um, but we're still seeing spyware, and that's why the, that's where the commiserations come. We're still seeing shutdowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly when I was framing that question, I was particularly thinking about spyware and Biden's recent executive order, which I do, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying in terms of the commiseration. I mean, that, that order is is carefully worded as well. Um, but yeah. but um, I do think it's important to celebrate these wins when they do happen because they don't, they don't come along all that often. And that is, as you say, the result of an enormous amount of advocacy. So, you know, from... From the Tech Policy Design Centre to all of those who've worked, um, particularly on the spyware issue, we really do say thank you for your advocacy and, and work in that space. I will say you're welcome on behalf of everybody back. <laughs> <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs> You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or, even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. This really only takes a few moments of your time, but it does help us to promote the podcast and get more people involved in these important conversations. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. I do just want to acknowledge here as well that that India is one of the countries that is the most mm-hmm. or is the most prolific uh, in terms of internet shutdowns. We've had a number of Indian guests on the show talking about the way that they're working to, you know, build technology, build a um, a policy ecosystem, mm-hmm. in part because they're looking to hold the Indian government more to account. So. What do you think Australia should be doing in this space? What is Australia's role in terms of um, mm. enhancing uh, digital rights and, and I guess, progressing these issues? Can I just reflect for a second on India? Because I think it's really important um, that people understand what an unfortunately powerful um, role they have in not just the, you know, one point three or four billion um, population or even more, but also the impact on the region mm. and um, and the impact on, you know, this whole idea about, you know, it's the world's largest democracy, um, and I'm, you know, sort of air quoting that, um, you know, seeing the way that the Indian government has um, shut down the internet 84 times uh, this uh, last year, and they're going to hit that record again in 2023. Um, the way that it has given itself the authority, um, you know, unlawful authority to, and through the states, not just through the federal um, government, to, to, you know, shut down the internet for extended periods of time, including Jammu Kashmir, um, and but all, but all over the the, the country, um, and for. For in ways that really negatively impact people's 
ability to live their lives and live their lives safely. Mm. Um, and it's combined not just with the, the shutdown work, but amendments of IT rules and um, on you know fake news and on uh, the ability to have content removed, etc. Um, that's kind of you know unacceptable to the state. Um, it's very undefined um, definitions of what you know sort of in, when you know, if it's a threat to national security or whether mm. it's, you know, creating further instability, et cetera. So, like, India is really, um, it's really a problem, uh, unfortunately. And I think the Modi government has demonstrated for many years now the lengths that it's willing to go through to both legislatively and politically to um, to take control of the digital sphere as it moves everybody into a biometric system as well, which is also very interesting and for Australia too. I think this is really important. So what is it that we should be doing to engage with the government? Because I think it really is important to separate the government from the people in this in this instance as well. And so what is it, and, and maybe it is the, the question that I asked before about what is it that Australia yeah. should be doing, but also, you know, what can you do in that circumstance? You know, there's lots of things that can be done and maybe this is coming back to your first question about kind of, you know, advocacy strategies and mm. like, but which is a lot of what we think about is like, wait a second, this isn't quite right. Like, how do we get it right? And you know, the, the, the Supreme Court in India um, is a very, has been, a, a you know, at times a very effective mechanism to be able to um, bring cases to try and overrule, um, you know, current government policy. Mm. And so I think that, you know, bringing amicus briefs, building up, um, helping to build up civil society to be able to bring those, those briefs, providing amicus support for into the court, um, has also been very useful. Uh, but, you know, I'm a very strong believer in uh, the way in which civil society itself um, should be empowered, like the local civil society should be empowered in, and enabled to, mm. to really do much of that advocacy combined with, whether it be legally or otherwise, combined with international solidarity. Um and it's unfortunate that, and this is a real matter, I mean, um, that civil society is under attack um, in so many countries around the world. Mm. And so whilst I'm saying, you know, empowering and enabling local civil society, and we can get to like the diplomatic piece of Australia as well, um, but, but, but the real very, very concerning matter is that the organisations that are focused on protecting the open internet and protecting the digital rights of its users um, are really like in danger. Yeah. And and that, that's a real issue. That's something that I am particularly conscious of as well. So it's interesting to yeah. me the conversations, you know, that you can have privately where people will express the concern of the point you make there about that they are in danger, that either mm. individually but also their organisations at risk mm-hmm. um, if they are speaking out is the very reason why they need to speak out. And I think that <laughs> exactly. that tension is exactly. something that we just take for granted in Australia, that you can criticise. Yes, exactly. That's yeah, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, the thing is that, um, that the, the rights that they're trying to protect are the mm. ones that are being taken away from them in the 
you know, in, 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 as they try to protect them. And so, you know, and that's with that idea about, you know, Computer Crimes Act, um, you know, defamation that moves from civil to, to criminal when it moves online, according to new legislation, um, you know, reputational attacks, the spyware stuff that we talked about, legal attacks, like that's what's happening to local civil society. And the reason why it is so problematic and why we need to bring Australia in and why we need a, like, a, is a, a democratic state mm. to, like, to make diplomatic representations and other things um, is because the decisions that are being made really are generational. And that's, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, you know yourself, like you've seen things pass through the Australian Parliament that are going to have consequences for a very long time. Yeah. And I've been involved um, in the, you know, work on surveillance and spyware um, after the Patriot Act was passed in the US. And it took ourselves and many other organisations, including the EFF, like, you know, years of work to get a slight repeal on the Patriot Act. And so the things that are being passed, there's just like this unbelievable reliance in a way on like local civil society to be the buffer zone between where we are and where we don't want to go, and yet a lack of recognition that those very same members of civil society are actually very vulnerable themselves. Mm. Um, so, but <laughs> to Australia. <laughs> so I think that, I don't think it's a happy story, to be honest. I think that Australia has um, been both absent um, at times when it need, needed to be present. Um, and I'm thinking about things like the Freedom Online Coalition, uh, which is this coalition of states that are committed um, you know, to, to an open internet and to like, you know, responding to, to having a set of standards um, that they can meet and also themselves and also, you know, advocate for. Mm -hmm. But Australia hasn't really um, been there in the way that it needs to. I think Australia in the region hasn't been there. Fast forward to like, you know, a number of years under the, the Morrison government where, like, you know, at, at the behest, I think, of, of Dutton, you know, where you've seen Australia's role in the Five Eyes um, where, in a way, Australia has been testing ground for, you know, proposals on encryption, in, uh, proposals and um, and laws on, you know, interception, um, and and access to information and data via the, you know, the, the tele via the telcos and the telecoms. And so, um, I feel as though, you know, if I'm frank about it, um, that Australia has 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 not been a positive force um, for for the sorts of for, for the protection of digital rights, and even just in terms of its you know I guess form of Aussie you know its budget, like recognizing if you just take the sort of you know some of the pointier ends of it out of the equation, um, the the issues around intersection between technology and development. You know, if you just mm -hmm. look at it from a purely mm -hmm. development perspective, not a human rights perspective, but how do we enable, if we're going to be providing support to the region, like how do we enable support for, um, you know, connectivity just as a basic like this? How do we make sure that people have a choice to be able to connect to the internet in, you know, 
name Fiji Tukalu, wherever, right around us. Mm. And 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 if you recognise that, you know, contemporary development, education, healthcare, but all the things that we've talked about are now reliant on connectivity, like that should be a thing that we should have been investing in for a long time if you're concerned about a development agenda, putting to the side the other stuff around, you know, surveillance and and um, encryption and in a, a access to information uh, in people's you know private information. So I think that I would say that you know on the India case, it's like it's difficult for Australia uh, again to be frank. Like it's difficult for Australia because some of the things that we're doing domestically are hard to be able to then go and advocate um, internationally on. Um, governments know what's going on. They know, they see, you know, what's happened in terms of like the re- demands on removal of content, uh, you know, in, back in Germany with, um, you know, some of the laws, the earlier laws that they passed, they also see the powers of the safety commissioner. Um, and I think that we need to understand that if we're going to be doing things domestically, like they can be taken, um, and out of the rule of law and applied in a situation which uh, is very, very concerning. I do want to speak a little bit about um, rights con, which is a bit of a step change, mm-hmm. but not really, actually, in the sense really. that, part, yeah, you know, what what you're talking about there is the fact that you need to build these coalitions of people um, and organisations um, to be coming together to address these issues, which are, which are tough issues. Um, and and mm. to underscore that generational point, um, which you know, with the decisions that we're making about technology policy today really are shaping our future for tomorrow. What are some of the key themes that are going to be front and centre at mm-hmm. RightsCon this year? Thanks. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we've touched on which is going to be on the agenda. Um, you know, we've got 2,000 submissions for sessions, wow. um, which is just, just crazy, I know. And, we, and we've said yes. I mean, which is also crazy. There's six. There's going to be 600 sessions at RightsCon this year. Are you um, so proud of what you've built? It's extraordinary. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people who are doing incredible work at in this space, mm. um, who are facing really extraordinary challenges, and you know, sort of. Um, and many of those people will be at RightsCon. So it's 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 June five to nine in in, um, in Costa Rica and and online as well, and people can still register. Um, if this, um, assuming, yeah, yeah, so people can still register. Um, but, you know, um, so there's many of the things that we discussed on, like, you know, surveillance, on the right to privacy, um, on freedom of expression, on fake news. Obviously, AI um, is going to be top of the agenda, uh, you know, where there's... Uh, have a bingo card with chat GPT on it. <laughs> yeah, how many, how many times... But, you know, I mean, the good thing about the RightsCon agenda is that it moves according to the interests of the, mm. the community because, it, it, you know, we had 80 people on the programming committee that looked through the 2000 sessions, decided on the 600, um, and they'll be, you know, both online and offline um, depending on the session. But I think that AI is going to be, um, you know, there's just been such an extraordinary explosion um, of... Um, of technology around that space, and now there's an understanding within the community about the consequences. Um, but I'll raise two other things that I think are really important. One is um, the issue of um, 
a humanitarian response. Mm. I mean, really about the intersection between technology uh, and conflict. And I think that we've seen, we've known about this for many years, but now there, again, there's like a popular understanding of the consequences and the interplay between technology and contemporary warfare. And, and we really need to get a handle on this because, you know, our traditional frameworks around you know, Geneva Conventions, et cetera, like they're struggling and the traditional organizations like the ICRC and the Red Cross, you know, are, are, are grappling with the fact that warfare is now cyber warfare and the consequences of it um, are, you know, just as deadly. Um, and the other area that I think, and so there's a whole stream on that. And the other area that I think is going to be really, really important and fascinating is to now bring the, the digital rights agenda to the climate crisis. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about technology and climate, um, but it goes all the way from like, you know, how does the algorithm on YouTube allow you to start, you know, searching on climate change and ending up with climate change denialism? Like, that sort of stuff all the way through the fact that we're now seeing on the digital security helpline, which we run as an organization, that about 15% of the cases of people who are coming with, um, with technical attacks on their devices or on their websites or wherever it might be are environmental actors. Mm. And so we need to grapple with that because, you know, there's no climate change protection without an empowered and a safe civil society on the climate front. Um, and so there'll be lots of talk around that. And of course, Costa Rica is the most biodiverse country in the world. Um, and so that means that there'll be a lot of focus on the environmental aspect of tech. Look, I mean, those are two uh, such worthy issues. And um, so I'm on the ICRC Global Board um, for Digital Threats and we're just in oh, the process. Are. Yeah, we're yeah. just in the process at the moment of finalising our report and you know, when that board was first stood up, it was pre-Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, it really um, it couldn't couldn't be more timely. And I'll I'll have a chat to yeah. you offline in terms of some of those discussions. Yeah, I'd love yeah, to. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Brett. Um, the final question we ask folks is uh, recommendations. So, books, podcasts, articles, Twitter. Um, who do you follow? Where do you recommend people go for some for information? Oh. Um, <laughs> just as an easy <laughs> question to wrap up. Um, I just finished a book um, yesterday, which is called um, um, Clara and the Sun. It's oh, by it's so um, good. Yeah. 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 And I, it was kind of, I started off kind of not liking it um, and I ended up actually quite liking it. Mm. But I think the way, you know, it's about the AF, the artificial friend of this young girl um, it kind of pairs up with, and the kind of humanity um, behind the algorithm or and then the sort of sentient being kind of emerging out of the robot. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. I would kind of quite recommend people to, to read that. I think it's got some really kind of, um, what's the word, kind of a natural kind of, like a sort of very genuine mm. um, insight into like the relationship between man or between humans and machines. Mm. And then I would say, and I hope you don't mind if I plug this, but I mean, I think that the, the Access Now website, accessnow.org, has just got like a really good global coverage of like the things that are happening in the digital rights space. And the Access Now Express, which we put out weekly, it's a free newsletter, just goes out and it's like a summation of the things that we're tracking. Um, I would encourage people to go to that and 
you know, a hundred other things as well. But um, yeah, but thanks for the opportunity. No problems. And plugs are definitely welcome if you weren't going to than I was. Um, and also <laughs> uh, the podcast that you're you're regularly on as well, This Week in Cyberspace is one that I'll, I'll plug for you. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. So thank you so much, Brett, for, for joining us today, but also for all the work that you and Access Now do. Um, looking forward to um, uh, partnering and collaborating with you more in the capacity of um, being at the Tech Policy Design Centre. And thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. Get involved.